Welcome to another fantastic episode of Who's Your Band. I'm kicking it off today for the first time in a very long time because this is normally Jeff's job, but Jeff's in a basement somewhere in Brooklyn getting ready to go on and do a set. So uh, let's introduce my wonderful co-host, Jeffrey Paul. Hey, guys. Sorry about the lighting, um, but I, I actually did not want to miss uh, this interview and get the opportunity to talk to our guest today. So, sure, why don't you introduce her? Well, Marsha, you're actually in for a treat because uh, seeing Jeff in this light is much better for your eyes, actually. <laughs> uh, one of my uh, favorite people that was ever on television, I will say that uh, without hesitation, uh, star of Night Court, star of uh, Empty Nest, one of my favorite shows that gets no credit at all. And uh, stand-up comedian extraordinaire, Miss Marsha Warfield. How are you doing, Marsha? I'm fine. How are you? Thank you so much. I almost didn't recognize me. <laughs> That's great. Looking good. Marsha, I wanted to ask you before I, ha I have to, because I can't stay the whole time, and I, 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 but like I had to actually talk to you. Um, right off the top, um, I want to know, how much of an influence was Moms Mabley to you in your career and in life in general? Well, you know, Moms was uh, 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 almost before my time. Um, as a young woman, Moms was, uh, she came along with the Phyllis Dillers, uh, more so than the Joan Rivers and, uh, you know, and the Cody Fields was in there somewhere. But Moms was somebody I watched on the Ed Sullivan show. And uh, she was somebody I, I knew only, I didn't know her party records. I didn't know her background. Uh, I didn't know a lot of hmm. stuff. So as a child, I, I watched uh, Moms and Carol Burnett and Lucy, and they had almost the same kind of effect and, and impact. She was, to me, in that, that, uh, that group. And I, I, uh, I found her later. After I started doing uh, stand-up, I went back and uh, got her records, and uh, I was amazed at her balls. Um, just that she has one uh, line that just floored me. She said she was talking, she wanted to talk to President Johnson. And so she went to the White House, and she saw him coming across the White House lawn. So she hollered at him. She said, hey, Lyndon, Lyndon. Come here, boy. And I, <laughs> I, I thought that was about the ballsiest thing I had ever heard. I, I think she's an inspiration for anyone who says they can't make it or there's something holding them down. This, Sean, are you familiar with who Moms Mabel is? Absolutely. Okay, so you, you know her story for maybe our listeners who aren't quite sure. Moms Mabley was a comedian. She, I think she came out of the vaudeville scene. She was um, she was gay, but she had to keep it in the closet. She was a black woman and she she didn't let anything, anything keep her down and prevent her from doing what she wanted to do. And so anyone who says, I can't do it or makes mistakes, I would say, look at Moms Mabley. She had the, the, the deck stacked against her and was able to overcome. And she, you know, she was a success at what she did. Well, see, moms, there were a couple of things at play. Like I, I mentioned her with Carol Burnett and Lucy because she assumed a character. Right. And when I started doing stand-up, I wanted to be a monologist. I wanted to do what the big boys did. I wanted to grab the mic and speak my mind as myself. And so 
mom's comedy was a little different than mine, but my fantasy as I've gotten older and learned more about her, if I could have hung out with moms in the 30s and 40s in Harlem and mm. on the Chitlin circuit, man, we would have gotten in so much trouble. <laughs> so so where, where did you grow up and how did you start making like your entrance into comedy? I grew up in Chicago and um, um, this story is like, you know, let me pull it out. <laughs> I started um, in 1974. Um, comedy at that time was transitioning from cabaret. In fact, um, nightclubs were transitioned. The whole scene was transitioning from the cabaret style, supper club kind of thing. They were all closing. And this new era of uh, uh, open mics was uh, blossoming, was beginning to sprout. And there was an article in the paper about a comedian named Tom Dreesen, who was now on his own. He had been teamed with the another comedian named Tim uh, Reed, and they were the first interracial comedy team. Is that the same Tim Reed from WKRP? Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. A team had, a Tim had just left, I think, to go work on the show, and so he was in California, and so the team broke up, and uh, Tom was opening this open mic we had never heard of uh, at a club, at a club, at a deli called the Pickle Barrel and um, said anybody could come out and try out that they had some regulars, but we could come out, anybody could come out and try out and see, you know, if they could do it. And he called them all virgins. And uh, so I went one night, I told a friend of mine I was going, never went. She got tired of me and she put me in the car one day and took me across town and said, going on, she introduced herself to Tom as my manager, I believe. And um, six hours later, two, three o'clock in the morning, I went on and made my debut. Didn't Tom Dreesen do like 197 appearances on The Tonight Show? I, I'm thinking he was more, did more than some uh, host, permanent host. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was going for that. Like gazillions. He was, he was a very, you know, he's, a lot of really, really good people came out of that uh, that that era. Uh, who else? Who else came out from that that mic in Chicago? Do you remember? Judy Tenuta. Um, oh wow! Um, yeah, James Wesley Jackson. Um, there was Tim Tom. There was uh, my friend Brad Sanders, who went on to mm. uh, produce uh, on the Tom Joyner show. Produce. Uh, a series called Is Your World. Um, there were just a, a lot of them. When I left a year or so later, a lot of those guys who were hanging out, they ended up on Car Watch. Oh, well, classic, classic, iconic movie. Just saw it about a week or so ago. So how did you make the, the leap? How long did it take you to go from being an open micer to, to start writing, uh, I think, on the Richard Pryor show? Um, it took the leap from my reality to somebody's imagination and people have been running with it ever since. I never wrote on the Richard Pryor show. I was a kid. I only wrote on the Richard Pryor show. I thought for some reason I wrote on the Richard Pryor show. Not you. I get it all the time. I don't know where that came from. 
Yeah. Okay. So I like, I like that. That's like every time I have a show, they, they always advertise me as from last comic standing. I tried out in season four and they put me on the intro for the first episode. I never made it on television. Right. And I, that thing haunts me for the last 10 years. <laughs> and you, you have corrected it and it keeps going. Oh, I hate it. Cause hey, it's like, yeah, it's not I'm mine. Sure. It's not my credit. I can't, I can't, yeah, I, I don't right. like, I'd rather them say nothing about me than give me a shitty fake credit. <laughs> yeah. I read that. And I was like, I don't, I, I was like, that's why I wanted to like find out about that. So, so follow up question then, how long did it take you to actually like find your voice and become comfortable as a comedian and get like your groove in your, in your style going? Um, I think I'll get there tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I it's a constant uh, evolution and growth process and and we think we know know ourselves in our 20s we don't know we don't know squat mm. and um I made it through I like to say I made it through uh, as far as I did in my 20s because I was too stu- stupid to be scared I was too stupid to think I couldn't and so um I did <laughs> and I kind of grew up with the with that new industry and happened to be uh, in the right time. You have to remember it was the mid seventies. So we were in the black power era. We were also in the era of black exploitation. So there, and, and um, uh, Eric Monte had movies and TV shows uh, that were being produced, uh, comedies, and he had uh, good times and, uh, and the Jeffersons and, and, these were things we had never had before. So coming along, I had a few more opportunities, limited though they may have been, uh, and, and managed to ride that and got lucky enough to uh, be a part of it. Did music play a role, help you? Like, did you listen to any type of music um, that would may have kind of like got you psyched up or calmed down or inspired you like in, in your performance and getting through do you this? know have we slept together do we are we in the same <laughs> how, how do you know this um i'm a motown baby i i like to, i talk about it in my act you know i was born in doo-wop and so that was the first kind of music i, I was uh, exposed to but it was evolving which artists did you like which, 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 My mother was a big, uh, her favorite song was in the still of the day. Um, my mother too. That, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Great, so great. Growing up, uh, like I said, the tra- and then Motown came along and, and now I'm from also from Chicago. So there's a big blues influence. There was a big R&B influence. There was a, a, a Chicago sound. Right. But Motown came along and uh, and dressed up the R&B and, uh, and it crossed it over in a way it had not been done before, uh, took it out of the, the juke joints, back rooms and, and uh, payola scams <laughs> into respectability. And so um, I, I, that kind of had an influence on me, but I still had a love for the more basic, more bluesy, more jazzy, it was, uh, bebop and uh, that rock was and black rockers and 
you know, preprint slashed on and <laughs> all of those people. And so R&B still has a big influence. It's a big part of, of uh, who I am and hopefully will be a big part of what I do on stage. One of my favorite memories of a concert was uh, my mom was a, a huge musical influence on me and still is to this day. And she dragged me to an old doo-wop show. Now I was probably like 10, maybe 10 or 11. And, you know, at that point, like a lot of the people from that era is gone and they have like their nephews or their sons filling in stuff like that. And they brought this guy on stage named Clarence Frogman Henry. And the guy needed help getting on stage. And I'm looking at my mom and I'm looking at my mom going, what the, what the fuck are you dragging me to? You know? And he gets up there and he sings this song. I don't know why I love you, but I do. And this guy had 20,000 people standing, dancing, yeah. singing, and did yeah. one song, put his hand up, and walked off stage. And I was like, this is the coolest motherfucker <laughs> I have ever seen in yeah. my life. I, I have a, such an affinity for that era because it's a, it's, I hate to say it's a dying era of that. It, it's of that, a oh, commercialized era. The whole yeah. thing, exact, that's a commercialized era. We were coming up. We were coming up in an era where kids were rebelling against the oppressive things that had were we were inheriting and and before the generation before. So it was it was the the kids breaking the barriers, the segregated barriers to go listen to Chuck Berry and 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 Little Richard that had a big influence on the whole cultural growth, not just of the music, but of socially. These kids were saying, no, I'm not going to not listen to that. It's not, you know, and you end up getting guys like Buddy Holly coming along and and, and the doo-wop era was uh, black and white. That was a big influence in that. So we were in an area era where it was about the music and it was about the, the revolution of the music. And you, like I said, you got guys like Sly Stone doing a more rock kind of thing, which is a throwback to the Chuck Berry kind of thing, but still it was innovative and 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 say what you will about them. There are many things to say about Ike Turner, but he was an innovator. Yeah. He was. Other than that, I don't know the man and I don't really want to talk about it. <laughs> but that those innovations and the embrace of them by all American kids was a big, bigger influence than I think sometimes it gets lost nowadays and we've become so compartmentalized that it you know, gets labeled as something it probably wasn't. That, that's the thing I hate was when you put things in, in a box. And I think you know, anything artistically, you know, there's, there's always room to grow out of that box. Short and I are both like, you know, both comedians, but we're both inspired by music. So like before shows, I like to sometimes listen to something like, you know, I'll listen to like maybe some heavy metal music Sean will listen to, uh, Taylor Swift. What do you like to listen to before like you go on? The Temptation. There you go. Oh, well, there we go. <laughs> have you seen the, have you seen the play yet? No, but I'm there's I I'm you know from the original era I remember the, the original group, and there have been so many temptations. I mean, it's like uh, people you don't get any bragging rights 
from saying you know or are related right. to somebody in a temptation. Like my uncle was in the temptation. They go, everybody's uncle was in the temptation. <laughs> <laughs> they have, but they managed to maintain this somehow with all the personnel changes, they managed to stay the temptations. You always know it's them and they always rise up. You know, you expect groups to fall off after a while and then they'll come out with something else and like, oh, you did it again. (laughs) So no, I like R&B and a little smooth. You think Lionel Richie sold? You think Lionel Richie sold his soul to the devil because, like, he's in his like late seventies and he looks better than he did thirty years ago? Wait, is he, is he in his late seventies? Oh, he's got to be. Yeah, he got to be. Well, late maybe I don't know. Late. Uh, somebody said that about me and really uh, caught me up short. They seventy-two. I, I did an a, a, a article and and it said, and here she is at almost seventy, back out here doing it. And I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> you didn't have to put it like that. You didn't have to say that. You know, why don't the wind up being pretty good? Mature. So I mean I had to go that far, but yeah, we are. Yeah, you look, you, you, you look great. Yeah, you're how do you feel? I feel fine. I mean, I, I really do right now. I feel I can't complain. Well, I could complain, but it would it wouldn't <laughs> matter. And it would be a lie because I've been recognizing that I feel pretty good. Uh, Have you been able to get back out and get on the road a little bit and and do some shows? I've been working here at the Comedy Cellar in in Vegas. Uh, It's at the Rio. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is that that where you live now? I'm not there this week. I'm there in uh, early March. Are you living in Vegas or are you living in California? I live in Vegas. Oh, it's a great, it's nice. It's, it's uh end of February now. So it's only like, you know, 98 degrees during the day. <laughs> no, it's cold. Is it, oh, is it really? Yeah. I mean, it's starting to warm up. This is like the first day we were supposed to break 70. Uh, but we've been in the, the highs of 60 something, lows of 40. It was whatever. 18 degrees here the other day. I, I love it. <laughs> Can't take it. it. When did you decide um, when you're in Chicago to make that big leap and go out to California? Um, Again, show business was transitioning and the Tonight Show had moved to California. Uh, The Sullivan Show was going off the air, I believe. Uh, Variety shows were dying. The industry had shifted to Los Angeles and Chicago's uh, stock and trade was improv. And those, you know, guys were exploding. Yeah. You know, the the Bill Murray's and the, the Second City guys right. were all over TV and they were exploding. But the clubs were gone. The supper clubs were gone. And they they're the only nightclub in town. And Zanies was brand new. Uh, I don't even know if it was open yet. I don't think it was open yet. There was no Zanies. And so it was like not a lot to do. I want to, the things I want to do, you know, I want to work. I'm going to California. So I told my mother I was going uh, for my birthday, about a year and a half after I started. How old were you? I was uh, 22. Oh, wow. That took some and guts. Back, no, well, see, back then, people were still hitchhiking across country. And Crazy. it became a thing. 
it became like a mode of transportation uh, right. uh, that many people preferred. People, a lot of people saw the whole country. Uh, the young people were hit, hitchhiking, and then there came that tragedy where the young woman lost her arms, and and it was a horrible thing. And that they stopped hitchhiking. Okay, um, but hitchhiking was my preferred method of transportation. And when I told her that, she told me well, no. You, you, you hitchhiked from Chicago to L.A.? I had it all planned out. I was going to go <laughs> stand on the freeway and hitchhike oh. to California. That was my plan. That's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, like you really don't ever hear about anymore is hitchhiking. No. But, the, the weird thing is I live in the suburbs, right? And I have a guy and he is a scraggly looking guy, long hair, bushy. Every day he's out around the corner from my house hitchhiking every single day. Does he ever get anywhere? Sure. I don't know. I don't know. I see him on different parts. Like the main road is like three miles long. I see him on different parts of the road. Unless the stupid asshole is just going from one side of the street to the other. I have no idea. But it's, yeah. it was like a, such a weird thing you brought that up because I haven't seen anybody hitchhike from that guy in 30 years, probably. No, it was a, it was a pretty immediate. You know, one minute the kids were moving out of their homes across the country and going to either the hate or to Los Angeles and, and sleeping on the street. And, I mean, that was a thing uh, back then. And then all of a sudden, nope, we're not doing that anymore. And, um, and it just ended. But uh, they also had uh, services that you could, where you could drive people's cars for them across the country or wherever <laughs> they wanted to go, and they called them driveaways. Yeah. And uh, so some friends <laughs> and I, we were going to do a driveway and go to California, and um, that yeah, so you know that too. When you get to LA, okay, how? What's your first break, and how long does it take? for something good to happen to you? Getting to LA was good. I got it as, as a birthday present. It was my mother's birthday present to me at the, uh, I can't, I don't know what the name of the hotel is now. It was the Continental Hyatt house next door to the comedy store. Two weeks, round trip ticket. If it don't work out, come home. I'm it's like, the old, okay. the old riot Hyatt, right? Yeah. Now it's the end. Yeah. That's the end as now. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that was, but that was my plan. So I, I went, and as soon as I got there, I, um, I uh, re got redeemed the other half of the ticket and got a job. And I had no intention of ever going home. So I got there like on a Friday, Monday night, and it must have been the 8th of March, 1976. I would, I had been going every night, but I went to sign up to open mic for the open mic. I went on and uh, the young man named Argus Hamilton went on mm -hmm. and uh, they told us both that we could start calling in and I was like, okay, but I was going to start calling in anyway. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> and so that's how I, I started. I, I just watched a, a series on Amazon called Fat Tuesdays. Mm -hmm. And I stumbled upon this. And let me just tell you something. It was the three of the greatest hours I've seen on television in yeah. a long, long time. Jeff, if you haven't seen it, you got to watch it. It's basically about uh, the comedy store uh, on Tuesday nights. 
with uh, Guy Tori, who uh, really broke out this amazing night of comedy uh, for the black comic community. Uh, I, I didn't realize, well, I, I, I knew this for a long time, but I didn't realize how influential black comedians were to me. Because I can remember growing up listening to old Red Fox tapes and listening to, you know, Eddie Murphy and things like that. But uh, Bernie Mac, for me, is the most underrated, underappreciated comedian to ever walk the planet. Didn't you just post that this week? Uh, Robin Harris, I was talking about. That's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Robin Harris and Bernie Mac, to me, are two of the most criminally underrated, underappreciated comics. And I think it's because they really did, you know, go before their time but yeah but i there are hundreds of other young black or they're not young now but i came up with so many young uh black performers who for various reasons either uh they fell by the wayside nobody ever heard from but they're very talented and and um, whenever i think about that and i think back even further back to minstrelsy and and uh, when black performers couldn't perform at all, and then when they could, they had to cork up and do that thing. And I think about all the people who said, no, I can't do that. And whose dreams never got a chance to be dreamed. And I, I feel, you know, sad for them. And I'm sure. like, okay, this joke's for you, uh, Aunt Sophronia, because <laughs> you should have been able to. Yeah. We, we see that too. I mean, we see there's some there's some comics on our scene that are criminally just they're brilliant, brilliant comics, yeah. and they haven't made it for some unknown reason, and they just stop doing it. And then you see pieces of garbage who are having specials on television, right. you know, and it kind of like pisses you off because you know you want to you want to be in that spot at some point. But uh, who was like one of your uh, your favorites from that era working at the comedy store? Oh, everybody. Um, uh, there, there, there were so many, but I wanted to make the point that what you're saying is, yes, there are all, in every aspect, there are people who will never, for whatever reason, get what they want. But there are some people who like Charlie Hill, uh, the lone native comic I've ever known. He was working back then. Uh, what are the odds that he was going to get in movies and TV shows? Not big, but he he did get some recognition, which was huge, considering that there was no chance in hell that he would. And um, I, I wanted to just say, think about the women. Sure. Think about the, uh, you know, the Hispanic, the Asian comedians who none of them. And then if you combine them, you know, you got a, a black woman who's a. Uh, uh, don't know she's gay, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, closeted gay black woman. That was my original point about Moms Maybelline. Whatever, there's no chance. Yeah. But you, you just keep plugging and and you don't quit because you know if you quit, nothing's going to happen. Uh, but the scope, I think, sometimes when we read about stuff like that, we don't understand the scope. Now, you know, of, of the impact of what that is and what that means and what that does. What was, do you remember the, uh, was there a specific, a specific night where uh, there was industry in the crowd that got you your TV deal? 
Oh, there were a few. Um, that won the San, San Francisco Comedy Competition in 1979. And then they had the uh, a few months later, they had a national competition. And I won that too. And Who did I, you beat uh, out in those competitions? You remember? I don't care. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I fucking love her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't, I mean, I remember Michael Winslow was in it, uh, Mike Davis, uh, Larry. Uh, Larry Miller? Uh, yes. Larry Miller. Um, I mean, these guys all went on really to have good careers. Guys. I think, uh, huh? These old guys who had really big careers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Dana Carvey came in. Robin Williams did that competition. A lot of people did that competition, and they're still doing it. They just had a, uh, they're like 900th <laughs> comedy <laughs> competition uh, a few months ago. So I did that. Uh, but I think the night at the comedy store that stands out to me most was the night Richard Pryor was there and he's working out material for one of his, uh, one of his specials uh, back then, which were released on closed circuit and stuff like mm -hmm. that and yeah. uh, uh, theaters. But comedians don't like to follow people like Richard Pryor. So everybody was coming up to him and saying, can I go on before you get him? You know, can I go on before you? And these were people who were very, very good people, uh, very good big name comedians now. And he was always gracious. And he said, yeah, go ahead. So he asked me if I wanted to go on. I said, no, I'll follow you. He said, you sure? Everybody said, I, I don't have a problem. That's how I used to get spots at the comedy store when when there weren't any available, I would volunteer to follow whoever was the hot topic. Mm. Because being from Chicago, I had been taught, don't matter who was on before you, you do your thing. Yep. So I, I just said no. And uh, he went on. I went to get a drink. And I'm waiting for my drink. And comics start running back to the bar going, Right now, Richard's introducing you. Right now, Richard's introducing you. I'm like, what do you mean, Richard? Richard, he's introducing you. And so I ran up the stairs, and I, and I just want you to, I think you'll like her, ladies and gentlemen, Marsha Warfield. That's incredible. I almost <laughs> cried. I almost cried. It was that, it's surreal. Yeah. Validate the validation as a performer from that moment was hmm. was I love huge. I love hearing stories like I had I had a story where um I was working at the Borgata in Atlantic City downstairs in like the thousand seat theater and Chris Rock was working upstairs in the convention center which is like 10,000 people Chris mm -hmm. is my all-time favorite comic all time friend of mine was opening for him I make the phone call I go look I don't give a fuck what I gotta do I got to meet the guy. I got to shake his hand. Like I've, I've been idolizing this guy for 30 years, even before I was a comic. I go up, I, I introduce myself and he goes, what time you go on? I'm like eight, eight o'clock. Wait, who was that impression of? That's Chris, man. That's my Chris Rock impersonation. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I wasn't sure. I I, I, me. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fuck both of you. Number one. Uh, so he comes down and he stands on the side of the stage and he's watching me. Now I'm shitting my pants because this is my favorite person in the world. And as far as comedy, I get, I get introduced the next person. I walk off and I go, what'd you think? He goes, you didn't suck. And he just walked <laughs> away. Didn't shake my hand. Didn't you didn't suck to me. That tells me I was fucking fantastic that night. 
Guys, hey. I got to go. Marsha, it was so nice meeting you. Join. Thank you, Thank you, buddy. Bye. Now that this fuck is gone, we can have some fun <laughs> now, right? But uh, yeah, bring I, out the candy. I really, really loved uh, Fat Tuesdays. It brought back a lot of memories for me of all the people that I was listening to. Um, what was it like making that jump from stand up going into television? Oh, I had I uh, which time? Um, first time. The first time was the probably the first time was. <laughs> Probably something like um, um, the Merv Griffin show. Oh, wow. Uh, Soul Train. No shit. Um, I did Soul Train two or three times. I did a lot of the Soul Train Awards. I did the Soul Train Comedy Awards. Don Cornelius was very generous with people from Chicago. And he's a cool motherfucker, too. Like, uh, you don't get much cooler than him, though. So I got to do those. And... um, then I got the prior show through Mooney. Oh, wow. And um, that was supposed to just be one background sketch. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and we ended up doing maybe two a piece, you know. And all, every, all of us came from the comedy store. They cast a, a pretty much all of the uh, ensemble from the comedy store. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we thought we would you know, cool. We got our little week's pay and uh, could get our union cards. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were good with that. But then uh, Richard said, hey, y'all just as good as anybody else we can find. You will, you know, we'll use you again. So we got to do all four shows. And that was uh, probably uh, one of the most uh nerve-wracking things uh, mm-hmm. just being in the presence of Richard Pryor and the people that he attracted around him and the people that did the show it's huge for you sure. know, a 22, 23-year-old kid but then to have to do that scene, that eating across the table scene um, with no rehearsal, no script that you just sit, they told us you sit and you would seduce each other with food they have the food when we tape. Okay. <laughs> and to make it even worse, Richard got married that morning. Oh, wow. Surprise. Nobody knew he was getting married. He was late coming. So the, the run through we were supposed to have, that's when they said, okay, you'll eat then we'll film again. That's that. So all this drama is going to, the press is around, everything's going to, blah, 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 blah. The first sketch they shoot that night is me. I don't have any experience in what the heck I'm doing. I have no dialogue. I don't know. And I'm the straight woman, which means I've got to drive the scene. Wow. Everybody said, trust your instincts. So I took a deep breath. They opened the curtain. And I trusted my instincts. And here you are. And here I am. What was it like um, joining a, a pretty, fi- you know, a pretty popular TV show uh, into the fourth season? I know, I know that Selma had passed away. Uh, and Flo. Yeah, I know that they had passed away. What was it like stepping into that? Because it was pretty <laughs> successful at that point. It was extremely. <laughs> it was the number four show in the country. Yeah. 
I can remember growing up watching that show. Even then, I knew it was a hysterical ensemble cast. It was John Larroquette and him, Harry were being nominated for Emmys every year, mm-hmm. and uh, John happened to win. But they, were, I mean, they kept being nominated. Every the show was an Emmy nominated series. Yeah, and um, was the anchor of uh, the must see TV lead in to drama, and so. Um, and I had no experience again, other than you know a couple of things here and there. And so I told my agent, I said, I, I, I gotta, I gotta, I don't know what I'm doing. I gotta take a class, do something. So, and I said, it's gotta be specific, something for TV. I don't want to just you know go to town over here, whatever. And I you gotta learn how to suffer. I didn't teach yeah. acting class, so. He found one and I go and do the first week. And then they say, buy this book before you come back next week, read the first chapter. And then we'll go from there. I bought the book. I sat down to read it. I opened it up. The first thing it said was the key to acting is to keep it simple. So I closed the book, put it down, never went back to the class (laughs) and did it ever since. And the first day, Harry called me over to the bench to say hi. And well, the first, yeah, on this rehearsal, he said, Hi, how you doing? I'm hi, how you doing? And I said, to tell you the truth, I'm scared to death. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. He said, I don't know what I'm doing either. <laughs> I said, you'll be fine. That. And that was that. And now you're on for what, eight seasons? The show ran for Eight and a half, nine seasons, and I was there from the fourth season. From the fourth to five season. Okay. And you go right into you know, you did the your own talk show for a little while too. Yes. I don't remember that. I'm not gonna lie to you and say that I saw that. I don't remember it. No, and I was supposed to uh I had been in talks with uh, uh another production company to do a nighttime show. They wanted an urban nighttime show. And um and I was so excited. That was right up my alley. I was the R&B, the thing. Oh, I was going to do that. And I, uh, it was pretty much a go. And then NBC said, nah, hmm. we got the right to first refusal. We don't have a nighttime slot because Letterman and, and, and Letterman and Carson were holding those. And Tom Schneider, I believe. Uh, yeah, really late, late show. Yeah. And then, uh, so they said, we have daytime. You're going to take it or leave it. Hmm. So I took it. What was it like working on an empty nest? Well, one more caveat. All right, good. The nighttime show mm-hmm. went to Arsenio Hall. Ah, okay. I, I always preferred the Arsenio Hall show. To most of the other te- television shows, there was more it's of a young show. You know, I've known Arsenio since 1975. So wow. I was, you know, I was upset that I didn't get it, but of I course. was. Upset. Of course. <laughs> so tell me about Empty Nest, because I think that's one of the most underrated uh, sitcoms over the last 30 years. What was it like working on that show? Well, you know, um, I've worked with so many great people. I can't. I'm the, I say I'm one of the luckiest people in the world. And uh, to say you work with Pryor, you've worked with, you know, Carlin, you work with everybody, Red Fox. 
And to to say I work with Richard Mulligan, one of the nicest men in the world, one of the funniest people in the world, most professional. Uh, it was just a, a great, calm, nice experience. And I got to play a character uh, that I, I wasn't ashamed of. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was I was happy. I was very happy on that show. It's a spinoff of one of the greatest television shows of all time. And I get a lot of flack being a 45 year old straight married man who loves the Golden Girls as much oh, as I do. The Golden it Girl. is the great. I think it's one of the greatest written sitcoms of all time. And it's four of the most iconic characters. If you took one of those iconic characters and put them on any show, they're going to stand out. You oh, take all four of them. <laughs> and you have four of them on one show. It, right. It's very, I think friends is probably the only like ensemble show since then, where you can say the same thing, where you can take out the characters and make their own TV show from it. What did yeah, you, what did you wind up uh, doing after empty nest went off the air? Did you go back uh, on the road? Yeah. Started doing stand up again. Did, uh, you know, I was working pretty steadily doing, uh, um, Private shows, public shows, working clubs, colleges, concerts. And um, 1995, my mother died. And, and that was pretty devastating. And so um, I moved to Vegas in 2001 after I went pretty uh, you know, down that rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. that, uh, the 90s are, are not the 80s anymore. Right, right. <laughs> And uh, it's time to pay the piper. So I ended up here in Vegas and uh, with family. And that turned out to be where I needed to be for the next 15, 20 years. I read the story about how um, you didn't come out of the closet until your mother had passed away. That had to be horrific for you. Well, now, see, yes. The whole thing. Uh, the whole growing up gay in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and <laughs> the 2000s, <laughs> it was uh, traumatic. And it, the turnaround has been dramatic uh, from what it was to what it is now. So that you have a whole generation who can't really understand how closeted America was. Sure. And um, and what it meant to be different as a kid, you know, and I was thinking about the other day, you know, my life changed and I had a real awakening and awareness and anger. Feminist moment when I was about five and they made me put on a shirt to go outside in the summer and I could not understand why I had to wear a shirt why the boys could go outside without a shirt and I couldn't. And, wow. you know, it just, most little girls I'm sure go through that, but uh, it, not to the extent that this is a violation of my personhood. Yeah. <laughs> and it was uh, my first conscious realization that the boy girl fair, not fair thing didn't fit me. I was cool 
being a girl without a shirt outside. Right. <laughs> so, you know, uh, growing into that where that's acceptable to everybody, including me, has taken a long time. So for my mother to be where she was when she was, was perfectly normal. And it wasn't um, an unreasonable request in the moment. Yeah, it's different, different era, totally different era. Now it's like, okay, that's unfair. And I know better than to try to put that anybody else through that. And I know how to tell people that's that good and blah, blah, blah. But if that's the work she was going to do when I told her, would say, just don't tell anybody while I'm alive. Man, because, you know, some kids get kicked out. Some kids oh, get yeah. beat up. Some kids get all kind of stuff in that And they kill themselves, too. Yeah, I mean, bad things can happen. Sure. And so that was, you know, okay. It is, it is a very different era. I mean, I, I have so many friends who have, you know, have children who have come out of the closet and some who, I mean, at a very young age have transitioned you know, from female to male and male to female, it's a very different era. And I think it's important that they hear stories like yours because yeah. they don't realize, like they'll, they'll be like, Oh my God, my mom took my Amex away from me. And they think that that's <laughs> the hardest thing in the world. When like, they didn't realize like people like you basically held their lives back yeah, and weren't, and weren't being a hundred percent true to themselves. And this is what I want, like the newer generations to understand is that, yeah, you know what, there's, so much out there. Like I, you know, people look at, you know, will look at me and like, you know, you're privileged, whatever, you know, I, I did, I had a lot of shit happen in my life too. You know, nothing sure. as, as, you know, as you have, or any, I don't compare people's issues, but the thing that I try to explain to people is, you know, I grew up in a very, in an era, and I'm a little bit younger than you, I'm 45, but I grew up in an era there was no internet. There was no fucking thing as the, inter- if anybody had a digital camera around me in 1997, I'd be fucked. <laughs> I'd be completely done for, you know what hey, I mean? Do you so know, we have more pictures. I have more pictures on my wall than some people took in their whole lives right. um, up until the nineties. I mean, uh, pictures were rare. Picture day was a dress up day where you sat in, you sat down mm-hmm. or that one uncle who had a camera came over at Christmas and you took a, some pictures and then they would fade away because they were Polaroids. <laughs> and so, right. You know, we have more documentation. We have more communication. We have more um, magic in our hands. And resources. Than anybody can can uh, could have imagined. You know, we we thought it, this this watch, this smartwatch, mm-hmm. well, you know, with George Jesson's watch, you know, I can make a phone call on this watch. Right. Uh, so we thought that was the height of cool, to be able to watch a movie on a bus, <laughs> right. you know, and then call somebody in Hawaii and tell them you're watching a movie on a bus. It's crazy shit, this isn't is it? It's amazing. I mean, we have, we take things for granted that oh, I call miracles. Unbelievable. This is a miracle. Come on, I'm talking to you. Right. You're where you exactly. are. I'm where I am. We're looking right. at you. We're 2,500 miles away. Look at it. Do it. I mean, it's 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 scary. It is scary. <laughs> but, um, do you find it more comfortable now doing stand up? Yes. Or do, you, or, or do you feel because it's a, it's a hard time to be doing stand up right now? Yeah, but it, it's it's weird for me because. Um, the kind of stand-up I want to do requires uh, uh, is more leisurely than 
is uh, being produced now. Okay. Right now, we're in a, a mass a mass production frenzy of just turn it out, get it out, do it from your house. You know, people have whole studios. Here we are in yeah. their homes and they're making movies and they're eating up material. And I'm like, whoa, babe, let's do like a comedy TED talk kind of thing. And mm-hmm. just uh, chill, have a drink. Yep. And have a more leisurely experience. So uh, I call that show The Book of Marsha. And uh, um, stand up when you're in the clubs. Yeah, I do that too. But uh, my goal is more concert theater like. Well, we have uh, a mutual friend, which I don't think you under, you even know about. So this is a person who I love more than most people on this planet uh, who has helped me out tremendously over the last however many years uh, is Carol Montgomery. Oh, yeah. Carol is a dear, dear friend of mine. Um, we even talked about her producing my first special, which is great. Um, and she, you know, again, another person in her 60s and now has finally done three specials in a matter of two years during a pandemic. <laughs> and you were on the third one, which when I saw when I when I heard the lineup, I was actually more excited to see you than anybody else on the rest of the of the cast how did you get did she reach out to you or is it through like agents or again that yeah i beg and just called her up and beg <laughs> no i didn't I, I got a call you know you interested sure <laughs> pretty much it i was in atlanta um amazing nick nick cannon's uh, uh miracles across 125th street and um Hope Floods Comics Rock. And I had two, three more days to shoot. I had to fly to California, shoot the the Carol's uh, even more funny women of a certain age, mm-hmm. and then fly back and do that. So like I left Monday morning and I was back Tuesday morning <laughs> to go to work. It was a great experience though, wasn't it? Well, I, you know, I wouldn't trade it. That's showbiz. And uh, it was uh, it was interesting and fun to do to be back in that kind of, you know, I haven't been in that kind of uh, schedule in a while uh, where you got every minute mapped out. So it was like the old days. Yeah, I, I love the concept of the show. And, and one of the reasons why I'm I'm so close with her is that I'm I'm one of the, one of the few male comics who doesn't say female comedian. I believe if you're a comedian, you're a comedian. Uh, it's just the way that I was always brought up. And every time I I personally put on a show, I guarantee you there's always one female comic on the show. And people are always like, well, women aren't funny. I'm like, no, fuck you, number one. The funniest people I've ever met in my life and the people who have helped me out the most in my career are two female comics and that's Carolyn and Vanessa Hollingshead, the two people who have helped me out the most. And I always say, I want to give back because uh, when you do a show, when you produce your own show, people don't understand you have to have a little diversity. So if the, I'm not your typical comic who's going to be like, I'm six, three, three fifty. Okay. The easiest thing for me to do is do fat jokes the whole show. I ain't doing it. Because I'm not pigeonholing myself, but like, and I'm not doing dick jokes the whole time either, you know. So I always want, I, I always want that 
that diversity. I don't ever want to have material crossover on one of my shows. Now, see, I get in trouble for that because there are people who would prefer everybody stay in little groups. When I did my talk show, when I when I do whatever, I always want my audience to uh, be so mixed, not just, you know, racially, gender, age, religious, whatever. I want whatever. I, I, I found that when I went to the comedy store, that was the best thing about the comedy store. Now, it wasn't uh, always fair. I mean, there were tears. There were sure. and a lot of people, you know, didn't get on who could have. But you saw so many different points of view. Not so much that you saw people who automatically reflected yours. So you got to hear different perspectives. Like I said, I heard Charlie Hill and his, I had never heard a Native man speak about what it meant to be a Native man in America. And to hear his jokes and to hear his like, oh, oh, wow. (laughs) And then here comes another perspective I had never encountered. I thought that was the future. And then it all got resegregated and even more segregated and everybody. uh, But that's a marketing technique that people use. The marketing of America to this audience, these people at this time. And I kind of think that we're ready and most people are willing to be more that they're cool with all being together and just seeing right. them shows like that. It's just we're not giving them that. But nobody's. Yeah, uh, I, I think funny is funny. Them. Funny is funny. No matter no matter what creed or, or nationality or or gender or however you identify, if you're funny, you're funny. And I one of the things that I can't stand about comedy, and I I, I shouldn't even say this, but it's the the comics who pigeonhole themselves into one little tiny market. So like we have the Italian comics who only play for the Italian comics. We have black comics who only do black rooms. We have women who are only doing all female shows. You know, you have, look, I I did tours all over the East coast and I don't change my act. I won't change my act. I, I say that I will, if I got the, the opportunity to go on to the Apollo, I would do the same set on the Apollo stage as I would in Greenville, South Carolina, where there's Confederate right. flags and gun racks in the fucking parking lot. Funny's funny. And that's what it comes down to. Yep. I, I look at it and I wish we had more of that, but people end up doing what's available for them. What's available nowadays are these segregated shows this became and pretty much while I wasn't working, you know, this is the world I came back to that I have to adapt to. Um, And it's not necessarily the one to my liking, but when I came back, I, you know, had to start all over. I started all over in bar shows doing the do the way bringer bringer shows. I mean, I, I had to, learn this game all over yeah. again not only that how to do stand-up again yeah and so uh where i am now is you know i'd rather be doing that one woman stand-up thing uh that all inclusive i'm the whole fucking show that's uh, it. 
That's exactly the way it should be, though. At this stage, at this stage in your career in your life, that's the way it should be. Well, that's what we're working on, and hopefully we'll get to debut it soon. I'd love to see it. Yeah. I'm excited to do it. You know, I'm itching to do it. Well, when you bring the show out to the East Coast, we'll warm up the crowd for you. Fuck <laughs> right. Carol. She had her shot already. <laughs> well, she'll, she'll, she'll watch us. So she'll tell me to go fuck myself. Maybe too. the next show she should do is Funny is Funny. Well, I always I said to her, why isn't there a funny men of a certain age? She goes, you have all the fucking television already. Knock it off. Yeah. Well, no, I, I, I understand. I understand why the show was done. I love the way that I saw the show before it hit the specials. I saw it in little theaters on St. Mark's Place in New York City with six people in the audience blossom into three Showtime specials. And it's an inspiration for me. It really is. So I want to thank you. All of us, thank you. I really want to thank you for coming on here. I, this this episode actually really meant a lot to me. We've had you know musicians all over the place. We have some comics on, but like once in a while, we'll get uh, an act that I really just want to get in. I, I want to ear fuck. What's the word? Earworm. Yeah. Into, into or your ear brain. fuck works too. <laughs> I respect my elders, Marsha. Okay. (laughs) You don't have to. I'm a comedian. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, What's your social media stuff so our listeners can uh, follow you? Marsha Warfield, that wherever you are. (laughs) (laughs) Everything. Thank you so much. Uh, Just from me, all my friends who love you as well. uh, Thank you for coming on the show and uh, keep fucking rocking out like you are. I love seeing, I love seeing this next phase of your career. I'm looking forward to it, too. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. All right. Bye-bye.